Thank you, Steve. Um, in our theme here, it has to do with social justice and woke doctrine and all of that. Daryl's going to talk about social justice, and he's going to, I'm certain, mention the fact that what goes by the name social justice these days is actually a form of institutionalized injustice. And you can see that in the fact that the people today who are talking most about social justice, who love that term and love the rhetoric surrounding it, are the same ones as they get in charge, they begin to let prisoners out of prison to commit more crimes. They, they soften punishments. And, and so crime is on the rise. Murder is on the rise over the past two or three years, like never before. So it's an upside-down view of justice. That's true of a lot of things. It's true of the LGBTQ movement where men and women, the, the terms don't mean anything anymore. You can be a man and and a muscular man and join a swimming team and say you're a woman and break all the records, you know, for women swimming, and yet society is obliged to recognize you as a woman. So we're living in this upside-down world, and I mentioned last night at the beginning of my message that the foundation for this upside-downness actually goes back more than 40 years, and it's rooted in a system of thinking called postmodernism, and the gist of that is the idea we can't really know anything for sure. Because if you don't know anything for absolute certain, then nothing needs to make sense. Nothing can make sense. And so in this hour, I want to talk about certainty. I want to talk about settled knowledge. How can we be confident that what we believe is true? In fact, I thought about titling this message, How Can I Be Sure in a World That's Constantly Changing? That was a hit song by the Young Rascals when I was a teenager in 1967. And the lyrics of their refrain include this, this line, I really, really, really want to know. That was 50 years ago. And one of the major differences between then and now is that the millennial generation doesn't really, really, really want to know anything. And the majority of people today like to react to things with great passion. They love slogans and all the symbols of deep conviction, but they don't really believe anything in the classic sense. With firm conviction and bold confidence, nothing is worth fighting for, nothing is worth dying for, and in fact, those things are considered, considered gauche and impolite these days. You see this on television all the time, you know, emotionally distraught people who don't really know the facts of whatever case has so agitated them. They come together and demonstrate and chant slogans and protest, and the narrative of injustice is fully constructed before all the facts can possibly be known, and the facts aren't going to change anyone's opinion anyway because the media is telling them how they are supposed to feel. And so the, it's a socially constructed narrative not the truth. That's what matters to them. You see online sometimes uh, the truth checkers, the, the verifiers, what they're actually doing is checking the narrative, wanting to make sure this story fits the narrative. It's not facts. They're not fact-checking. They're narrative-checking. And they don't know, and they don't believe it's possible to know absolute truth of any kind with any kind of settled certainty except for this bedrock belief that anyone who is certain about anything is considered arrogant. Because if they don't believe they, they themselves can know anything, why should they take anyone's truth claims seriously? Especially someone who is so unenlightened as to believe that God has revealed truth without error in Scripture. That's such a backward view, according to the public today. And just in the span of my lifetime, there has been a massive loss of interest in truth. People in today's culture don't really care if they never come to know anything with certainty. They have their video games to play and where they can live in a virtual world where literally anything might be true. And they have mindless entertainments and fleshly pleasures that are easily available from multiple sources, on your phone, on your tablet, whatever, they frankly don't care what's true because at the end of the day, they don't believe truth is knowable anyway. And that is a major problem today. I'd say that's the source of countless problems, not only in secular culture, but 
Also within the evangelical movement, this idea that nothing can be known for sure, it's everywhere. It seeped into the church several years ago, and it's becoming more pronounced, and that's what I want to talk about in this hour. And these are some of the questions that I want to consider with you from a biblical perspective. What can we know for sure? And can we really know anything with settled assurance? How do we answer the argument that it's arrogant or improper to say that we believe something with settled conviction, especially, you know, things that can't be known or trusted or, or tested by the scientific method? How can, you, how can you say you know that for sure? And by the way, lots of people today, including far too many Christians, would say that scientific testing is a a perfectly reasonable standard by which to judge what's true and what's false. So that if there's no scientific proof that a thing is true, then at best it's just an opinion and not a fact. And that is the modernist belief about knowledge and truth, that science is the ultimate arbiter of of what's true and certain. And by the way, although it's called modernism, it's already considered old and outmoded as a way of thinking in most academic circles today. Modernism was in vogue, and it was a topic of fierce debate in the church at least 150 years ago. The modernists said that science is the only reliable test of truth. And so if you want to distinguish between what's true and what's merely a hypothesis, you have to put your idea to the test and prove it by the scientific method. And modernists firmly believe that there is a scientific explanation for everything that really matters, anything that can't be established or confirmed and scientifically tested can't really be known for certain, they said, and therefore whatever science can't possibly verify doesn't ultimately matter. That was modernism. And so Darwinism became, that was a classic modernist effort to do away with the necessity of believing in a creator. And although Darwinism itself is a hypothesis that cannot be tested or or verified by the scientific method, there are multitudes, including most of the world's leading scientists, who insist on treating Darwinism as a scientifically established fact. Because by their own standard, if it, it can't be proven it can't be true and they desperately need it to be true because if you can't explain creation without a creator then you have to make room for spiritual truth and modern science is supposed to be completely naturalistic devoid of any hint that there might be spiritual or supernatural realities and that fundamental notion on which post-enlightenment modernism was founded that's it that Everything has a natural explanation. There can't be anything that would be verifiable that's spiritually or supernaturally true. So you ask, what about things like moral values, right versus wrong, good versus evil? Because you can't really prove any moral standard or spiritual truth by the scientific method. And therefore, modernism breeds hostility to all moral and spiritual values. And even if that's not what the original modernists were aiming at, that is what their basic presuppositions ultimately demanded. And it's pretty easy to trace the progression from modernist presuppositions to ultimately the rejection of all morality. There's a straight line from the modernist idea that everything must be testable by science to the idea that morality doesn't matter. Let's erase all the moral standards. Darwinism and Darwin's doctrine of the survival of the fittest set the tone for that. Darwinism itself was, of course, an unprovable hypothesis that had to be accepted by sheer faith, but they ignored that. The modernists started with that and treated that as received truth, and so Darwinism became the defining framework for everything modernists believed. It's it's what replaced religion for the modernists. And if you take that principle, the survival of the fittest, and apply it to human society, you have to eliminate historic Christian morality. You have to, because if only the strong survive, human oppression can't really be considered immoral, right? If people and people groups are subject 
to Darwin's laws of natural selection, then you can actually justify pretty much every human evil from abortion to racism. And, of course, that is exactly what happened. It was called social Darwinism. And that's why the 20th century became literally the bloodiest century in all of human history with holocausts, ethnic cleansing, two world wars, and some of the nastiest totalitarian regimes the world has ever seen, slaughtering masses of people, numbering in the multiple millions. Nothing like that had ever occurred in the history of the world. There had been, of course, tyrants and slaughters and wars and all of those things, but not on that scale. Social Darwinism spawned these large-scale social experiments. Virtually all of them required centralized governments with totalitarian control over people. Sound familiar? And it became the job of dictators and party bosses to tell people what is true and certain. They say, trust the science, but actually what they're asking us to do is trust the politicians. And if you believed anything different, you could be killed for it. This was true throughout the 20th century. Survival of the fittest, you know. And that is why ideas like Marxism and communism and fascism were all predictable fruits of the modernist idea that, you know, truth is established by science. And rightness is determined by the survival of the fittest. And, of course, all of those systems failed. The 20th century saw more big ideas like that fail than anything else in history. And and it was the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 that marked really a major turning point in human history. When that happened, it, it symbolized the failure of communism. It was witnessed live on TV worldwide. Some of you will remember it. And it became clear to most people that modernist ideals simply don't work in the real world. And furthermore, after more than two centuries of enlightenment, people finally realized that scientific opinions are constantly in flux. They're never settled. So science can't possibly offer the promise of settled certainty. And so a new way of thinking began to dominate, and it's known as postmodernism. That term was first used in the early part of the 20th century originally to describe some new styles of art and architecture that rejected the ugliness of modern art. And by the 1980s, this term, postmodernism, was being applied to revolutionary ideas about literary criticism and textual deconstruction. And postmodernists said that it's the reader rather than the author who gets to determine the true meaning of any given text. And if you went to college... Any time after 1985, you probably learned about deconstruction. It's an approach to interpreting movies and music and literature or whatever in a subversive way, a deliberately subversive way of interpreting things. You can use it to find symbolism or meanings that the author never actually intended. And in the academic realm, this was deemed a profoundly enlightening exercise to deconstruct a work of art or a piece of writing. And over the past 20 years as students who've been indoctrinated in these ideas have graduated and moved out into the larger world, postmodern ideas about truth and meaning have infiltrated pretty much everything we see and hear and read. Everything. You see it on the news every night. Basically, postmodernism is a rejection of the modernist truth test. So the postmodernist believes that If truth can't be established for certain, even by science, then there's really no way to be certain about anything. And I would say that is the central canon of postmodernism, that you're not supposed to believe anything with settled conviction. That's what I said last night. It's what I said at the beginning today. Basically, everything is supposed to be regarded as a theory or a hypothesis or your opinion versus mine, or as you often hear it, your truth rather than my truth. Everything other than my personal opinion is simply someone else's personal opinion. And literally everything then is treated as a question of individual perspective. So you have your truth, I have my truth, and everything you believe is subject to change whenever your perspective changes. And so raw emotion rather than the rational mind is what determines how strongly we feel about anything. Or to quote John MacArthur, he says this, 
right and wrong have been redefined in terms of subjective feelings and personal perspectives. Again, you see this on the news every night. Now, I want to be as clear and non-technical as possible. I want to deal with this subject in a way that really anyone with a basic elementary education can get it. But I need to use one term that some might find confusing. And so let me give you this one definition. You don't even need to write it down. Uh, I, I think it's simple enough to remember. And the word is epistemology. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that is concerned with the ground and validity of knowledge. How do we know what we know? That is the question epistemology undertakes to answer. And for non-Christians, frankly, this is not an easy question. There's no answer for this if you're not a Christian. Actually, those who reject the God of Scripture, it is impossible to say how you know anything for certain. And so most of them have simply given up the modernist quest for truth and certainty, and that includes secularists in the academic world, all of the leading astrophysicists, biologists, philosophers, humanists, literature teachers, gender studies professors, even the mo- even most of the secular mathematicians, which makes no sense to me at all, but they have, in effect, admitted that they have no valid basis for being sure of anything because and they are right about this, knowledge is impossible apart from God. And therefore, the only absolute truth any postmodernist can claim, the only absolute truth that postmodernist epistemology acknowledges is that they can't know anything for sure. So don't ever accuse a postmodernist of denying that absolute truth exists. That's not their point. They don't know enough to make Uh, such a sweeping assertion that absolute truth doesn't exist. What they're saying is this. If absolute truth exists out there in the universe, we can't know it with any kind of certainty. And therefore, postmodern wisdom suggests that simple humility should keep us from ever claiming that we know anything for sure. That is the fundamental idea that is driving human society right now. And if you're afraid to go against that principle, you are going to damage your testimony as a Christian. Because as Christians, we are supposed to know some things with settled certainty. But this is the idea that drives human society, the belief that no one really has the authority to declare that anything is true for all of us, objectively true. You can express your personal opinion with as much passion as you like, but you can only do that if you acknowledge that it's merely an opinion. My truth. You cannot make any universal truth claims these days. So now think that through. If, if culture is going to function under a belief system where truth is constantly changing and an, uh, an oligarchy of enlightened minds is going to have to then tell us and keep telling us what the current correct way of thinking is. That's exactly what they're doing through the media and the government. In America, the Supreme Court currently serves that function. They sit at the top of that chain, although the president has tried to claim that role for himself. In Europe, the European Parliament tells people what they're supposed to believe at any given moment. And meanwhile, as far as the average postmodernist is concerned, the one remaining cardinal virtue is the humility of confessing that you don't really know anything for sure. And that's why, according to any postmodern way of thinking, dogmatism is inherently arrogant. Diversity is always honorable and, and, and a good thing to pursue. And propositional truth claims are never to be taken seriously. That's the postmodernist way of thinking. Now, as Christians, we ought to recognize Instantly, that is not humility, that's unbelief. But postmodern skepticism is an idea that has become so pervasive, you probably don't realize how much it has probably seeped into your own thinking. It's practically force-fed to you every day in the form of the news and entertainment that we watch on television, online. It's true of Fox News as well as MSNBC. It's the reason nothing is ever really resolved in all these ubiquitous arguments that take place in forums on the Internet. Because if certainty is impossible, 
not to mention arrogant, then everything you believe is ultimately just a matter of opinion. And without any kind of settled certainty, no one's opinion is really any better than anyone else's. That's why expertise doesn't really matter anymore, unless the people at the top of the food chain are telling you this is what the experts say, and then you're supposed to believe it without actually investigating it. But basically the idea is all opinions are essentially and fundamentally equal. Expertise means very little, really. And that's why our nation's television networks and and viewers alike have given up on serious news coverage. You don't get the news at night. The vast majority of people under 30 get most of their news and opinions from parody news broadcasts like The Daily Show or The Weekend Report on Saturday Night Live, or at best, they'll watch a colloquium of angry women pooling their ignorance on The View, (laughs) or, or they'll be amused by comedians and celebrities who, you know, lampoon selected news stories on HBO, and they think they are well-informed about what's happening in the world. Because what counts in any news today is not the truth of the matter, it's the narrative that's told. So you look at any of the sweeping moral and spiritual changes that have turned our entire culture inside out over the past 40 years, and all of them are rooted ultimately in this idea that nothing can be known for certain. Even your gender isn't an issue of fixed certainty. You're supposed to determine your own gender by how you feel, not by your genetic makeup or your physical constitution. Have you noticed our nation's media have started referring to your actual genetic and biological identity as the gender you were assigned at birth, as if your mom's obstetrician just arbitrarily assigned you one gender or the other. It's the stupidest expression that that I hear every day on the news. But no problem. Society now says you can change your gender if you don't agree, agree with the classification that was assigned to you at birth. You can literally be the Olympic gold medalist in the men's decathlon, and if you feel like a girl, today's constantly shifting notion of social propriety says people are obligated to say that that's what you are, a girl. If a guy thinks he's a dog trapped in a human body, society, and soon I suppose suppose even the courts and the legislature will insist that we have to play right along with him and call him a dog, pretend he's a dog. So that the line between mental illness and sanity is steadily being erased. And all of this is a direct result of the belief that we can't really know anything for sure. The attack on certainty is a direct assault on faith itself, and it has undermined the courage and conviction of an entire generation of Christians, including many of the evangelical movement's best-known leaders. The fear of Speaking with clarity and settled conviction is epidemic in the blogs and public pronouncements of some of the evangelical world's best-known leaders. And if someone does come out and say anything with with settled conviction, especially if he's critiquing an idea that someone has unleashed into the evangelical discussion, he's going to be assaulted with complaints from people who say his tone is uncharitable and his judgments are too harsh because the only thing worse than claiming you are certain about something is if you say someone else's ideas are wrong. That's even worse. Even if you're saying that that guy who thinks he's a dog is mistaken about who he is. That's unkind. And the courts are ultimately going to say, you can't do that, it's hate speech. It's bad enough that this trend is changing the world around us. But, you know, pagans will be pagans, and frankly, I think those who reject truth and and even spurn common sense because they're so desperate to have a worldview that's devoid of God, they need to live with the consequences of that kind of unbelief. They're welcome to it. And although it grieves me to see the world become so hostile to everything that's heavenly, One of the things I am absolutely certain about is that God's truth will eventually triumph, and those who hate the truth and spread lies will ultimately be put to shame. And so I'm content to live in a sinful world and proclaim the truth, even if it's costly. No matter how many times you hear people make this claim, 
Our task as Christians is not to redeem our culture. That's not assigned to us by Scripture. Scripture never even uses language like that. We are to proclaim the gospel and declare to the world that God commands individuals everywhere to repent, individuals, and to help pull as many individuals as possible out of the fire. That is exactly the language Scripture uses. In fact, listen to the last verses of the main text of Jude's epistle, just before he gives that famous benediction. Jude 17, verses 17 through 23, he writes this. But you must remember, beloved, that the predictions of the apostles of our uh, Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we must stand against the popular opinions of our generation, but meanwhile, We don't need to be discouraged by the decline of civilization. As Jude reminds us, Scripture told us times like these would come. But what is discouraging to me is watching the world's skepticism and postmodern glorification of doubt as it seeps into the church. Even among evangelicals nowadays, it's common for people to back away from basic Christian doctrines because they're not popular. They, they decry certainty. They vacillate on moral issues. They boast about their lack of convictions. And that is fundamentally, actually, what the emerging church movement was all about 10, 15 years ago. Leaders in that movement said what they wanted to do was provide a safe space for Christians who were doubting what they'd always been taught. And it quickly and predictably became a place where apostates took over pulpits and and they were able to attack truth without being seriously challenged by anyone. And that movement died, thankfully. But even in more mainstream evangelical circles today, I see a troubling tendency to coddle and excuse doubts while denouncing certainty because postmodern audiences think certainty sounds arrogant. Much of the evangelical academic world seems to fear that they will lose their credibility among secularists if they don't tone down their own certainty about the Bible's truth claims. So believing in the Genesis account, for example, is is deemed naive. And it's really hard nowadays to find people in seminaries and other Christian institutions of higher learning who, who still stand firm on the biblical account of creation. Everything has to be nuanced and made subtle or ambiguous. Dr. Paul Elliott describes this problem very well. I want to quote him. He writes, As the fogs of nuance have rolled into the evangelical church, the main thing they have brought with them is uncertainty about the Bible. The graduates of most modern evangelical Bible colleges and divinity schools come into the church preaching uncertainty with great certitude. The Bible is inerrant, they say, but that doesn't mean we have to believe that Job and Jonah were historical people or that the Bible is accurate when it speaks about things other than spiritual matters. That's a pervasive view. He's right. And some Christians are simply confused about all this, and they just don't know how to talk about truth and certainty anymore. I recently came across an article posted online by an evangelical ministry that is generally sound doctrinally, and they specialize in apologetics. We wouldn't agree with every jot and tittle of their teaching, but they aren't charismatic. They aren't suspiciously liberal or anything like that. This is a ministry that was founded by a guy who teaches in mainstream evangelical churches. I think he's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. So it's not like he's a rank heretic or anything, but the title of his article is this. Why I Lack Certainty About Christianity. This is an apologist. My first thought was maybe he's trying to use irony or, or he's just being provocative to get people to read the article. Surely he would defend the biblical idea of certainty. 
But nope. He waffles quite a bit on his definition of what certainty entails. And finally, he says what he's talking about, and I'm quoting here, is akin to infallibility. He says, quote, Certainty is akin to infallibility. It is perfect and incorrigible conviction. And then he says, however, none of us really have access to this type of certainty. And he goes on to give a scale between absolute disbelief and total certainty, disbelief being zero and certainty being a ten, and he explains that he's pretty certain about some things. It depends, he says, on various factors like the clarity of the truth claim and the relative importance of the idea, and then he says, quote, there are very few beliefs, if any at all, that I am a ten on, implying that there are matters that he considers close to 100% certainty. For example, he says, I believe that 1 plus 1 equals 2. Well, good for you. (laughs) But on all matters of theological or philosophical questions, he says, I don't think I'm a 10 about anything. And so he asks himself, what about the existence of God? Aren't you a 10 there? And then he answers himself, no, but neither are you. If you think you are, then you've missed the point. And in my judgment, he is the one who's missed the point. Actually, he's missed several biblical points that are vital to this whole issue. And I hasten to say, I, I think this writer's actual beliefs are, are better than his analysis of certainty. Because I think the main point he wants to make is, is that doubt and faith do sometimes coexist in our minds. It's a point I've made in a couple of sermons I preached recently when Peter walked on water, for example. His faith was assaulted with doubt. And then there's the man in Mark 9, 24, who says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So we know that doubts do assault our faith, and we'll come back to that. But here's where I think that article and the position he's taking is way off, and he's trying too hard to be in sync with the postmodern idea. First of all, I am more certain about the existence of God than I am that one plus one equals two. And he should be too, because we had to learn math. Knowledge that God exists is innate in our human consciousness. Romans 1, 19 and 20. Paul is speaking here about all of humanity, and specifically those who claim that they don't believe in God. And Paul says, yes, they do believe in God. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him, Paul says. I'm reading from Scripture. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And the New American Standard Bible gives an even more literal translation of verse 19. It says this, That which is known about God is evident within them. And so the scripture is saying there's an innate knowledge of God in every human heart, and that knowledge is further confirmed by external evidence, namely the glory that is manifest in creation. Paul goes on to say that the problem with atheists and agnostics is not that they don't have sufficient knowledge to be certain of God's existence, but rather that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, so they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, that's Romans 1, verbatim. And that's one way this guy goes off track. He's essentially contradicting what the Bible says when he says he has more certainty about a math equation than he has about the existence of God. Scripture says otherwise. And second, he's actually got the idea of certainty backward, because biblically, the certainty of a truth is not determined by how I feel or what I think about it. The certainty of any truth is determined by the reliability and the weight of whatever witnesses attest to that truth. In a capital court case, for example, the biblical standard was multiple witnesses, Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, that's dealing with human testimony, which is fallible in any case. 
even when two witnesses agreed, they could be mistaken or lying. So human testimony is only relatively certain. So is there anything that is absolutely 100% certain? And the answer is, of course, that is precisely the claim the Word of God makes for itself. Scripture is true, and it is true infallibly and absolutely. It is the Word of God who cannot lie. Jesus, praying for his disciples' sanctification in John 17, 17, said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus again, Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. John 10, 35, Scripture cannot be broken. Luke 16, 17, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So, That's Jesus' own testimony about the certainty of God's word. And the testimony of anything certainty is not how I feel about it. The the test is the reliability of the thing itself. Some guy might feel absolutely certain that the moon is made of green cheese. That doesn't make the truth claim certain. And if you want to talk about certainty from a biblical perspective... That is the standard. The only certainty that matters is the reliability of the truth itself. It's not about the depth of my own personal conviction. It's not about whether I doubt it or accept it without doubt. This is essential to the credo of historic, authentic Christianity. Our bedrock conviction is that what the Bible says is true and certain. And indeed, the truth of Scripture is the ultimate certainty because it is the very word of God. That is the confession we make as Christians. Don't back away from it. Our confidence is rooted in the word of God, not in external evidences, not in our personal point of view, not in whatever level of intellectual comfort we can derive from, you know, comparing the Bible's truth claims with current philosophy or the latest scientific opinions. But when it comes to my own personal assurance the weakness or strength of my assurance has no bearing on the actual certainty of the Bible's truth claims. Whatever doubts I might struggle with from time to time don't make the truth itself any less certain. Doubts and fears are part of everyone's experience, but these are sins to be mortified. Our doubts, like we said last night, these are, like any other sin, not a badge of authenticity to be celebrated and shared. And that, I think, is maybe the most maddening feature of the postmodern evangelical subculture. We have imbibed enough of the world's values to be skeptical of emphatic truth claims, including the Bible's own claim that it is inerrantly truthful. And even though the culture all around us has been thoroughly poisoned by skepticism, the average evangelical today acts as if One of the greatest threats to our testimony is a surplus of excessive certainty. You hear this all the time. We don't want to seem too sure of anything. Brian McLaren used to write whole books about this, and he would always start out saying basically the same thing, that he doesn't, it doesn't bother him when people have doubts. It bothers him when people are too certain. And even some of the most conservative Bible teachers Talk like this almost pathologically. You've heard it, I'm sure. They say things like, look, I know some wonderful, sensitive people probably won't agree with me. I certainly don't claim to understand everything about this doctrine perfectly. And I know a lot of people have gone overboard with it. And good people who are smarter than me see things differently than I do. And I admit that my opinion might be shaped too much by Western culture and Greek philosophy. But it seems to me that the Bible really does teach that God is going to punish evildoers if they don't repent. And if you dare to express a fundamental biblical truth confidently, especially if it's an unpopular idea like the wrath of God against sin, you're going to be pilloried for it. So that anyone nowadays who teaches the Bible with confident boldness is going to find that every biblical truth claim is subject to deconstruction or slow torture or strangulation at the hands of some postmodern critic, often within the church. Some of the worst critics are influential voices within the church. Frankly, Tim Keller is an expert at this. Listen, 
when Christians equivocate or hesitate on matters where the Bible speaks clearly, the world is not impressed with our humility. They are, however, getting the impression that Christians don't really believe the Bible should be taken seriously. And let me say this clearly. If you don't really believe the Bible is the Word of God, don't, you're not a Christian. Don't claim you are. If you do believe the Bible is the Word of God, then what you are confessing is that the Bible is, by definition, true and reliable and certain. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. That's really all the certainty you need. So, you thought my introduction last night was long? <laughs> Let's get to the text. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. And I'll spend the remainder of our time with you in this chapter. Hebrews 11 Because the first verse of this chapter is all about faith, assurance, and convictions. Those three nouns are all listed in this verse. Faith, assurance, conviction. That's how both the ESV and the NASB translate it. And here's my point in bringing you to this text. If you lack assurance or if you have weak convictions, you need to immerse yourself in the word of God and trust what it says and let your faith thrive and increase because Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Those are strong words. The King James Version says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. One of the modern translations, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, says it like this. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And all of those are legitimate translations of the Greek. The Greek text really embraces all of those ideas. So this is purposely a very strong statement about faith. True saving faith is not just a vague notion that something is true. It's Faith is a supernatural, God-given, life-transforming reality. Faith lays hold of Christ. That's what confirms the truth and gives us the unshakable conviction that his word is true and conclusive. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith opens our spiritual eyes to see, and it renews the soul, and it opens our hearts to understand. And, of course, all of Hebrews 11 is about faith. This is the best chapter in all of Scripture about faith. And one idea, a theme that that runs from start to finish in this chapter, is the idea of seeing what is invisible. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Verse 10, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He never saw that city during his earthly life. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it? Abraham, and it makes this point in Hebrews 11, Abraham lived in tents as a vagabond his entire life, but he had a promise from God, and he counted it as sure and certain. He never let go of that hope. Now, we know he struggled with doubts from time to time because he undertook a fleshly scheme to fulfill the promise that he would be the father of many nations. So he had moments of doubt, like all of us do, but he never let go of the promise. His faith survived all of those attacks because God himself is the source of our faith, true faith. And Moses, likewise, verse 27, by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's that theme, again, of seeing into the realm of the invisible. And I'm sure you're familiar with this chapter. It's a long honor roll of Old Testament characters who lived by faith. But look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And look at the middle of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Not really the prosperity gospel, is it? 
And these all, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised. So they all died without seeing the fulfillment of the promises that they were trusting because all of those promises are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And not one of those people lived to see the incarnation of Christ. And so we have, this is the point the writer is making there, we have a great advantage over them because we have more of God's word and we have seen the fulfillment of many of God's promises that they never saw. They clung to by faith. Much of the unseen truth from the Old Testament, the stuff the Old Testament saints trusted God for, it's fully known to us. So there's no reason our faith should be as paltry as it is. And if you think you need to see some other evidence or some other proof that the truth of God's word is trustworthy, you haven't really laid hold of Christ by faith yet because faith itself provides all of the assurance and all of the conviction you need. Back to verse 1. And now let's consider this question. What is the faith that this chapter speaks of? It's not some blind, credulous, ignorant hope. It is not a wishful guess. It is the assurance of things not seen. It's not the superstitious fancy many people think faith is. You know, a lot of people think that if you wish for something hard enough, and if you can convince yourself that this thing is true, then that will make it true. And some actually teach that you can create your own reality by simply saying the words out loud, you know, declare your own miracles, speak the word of faith, make a positive confession. If the doctor tells you you're sick, you tell yourself that you're healthy. Your words can create the reality that you want to see in your life, and what you say determines your destiny. That is the the theology of the prosperity gospel, exactly how word faith charismatics describe faith. But that is not faith. That is blind gullibility. It's based on a twisted interpretation of Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Or Luke 17, 6, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, understand, Jesus is working with a biblical view of faith. Because to begin with, as we said, God is the source of authentic faith. Romans 12, verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Notice what it's saying. A measure of faith is allotted to us by God. Our faith comes from him. We don't concoct real faith out of sheer willpower. You can't do that. And if God wants you to move a mountain or a mulberry tree, he will give you the measure of faith that's necessary to do that miracle. That's what Jesus is saying. And it might be a very small measure. He says it's like a miracle like that would require no greater faith than a tiny mustard seed. And that is because the power for that miracle, just like the faith, comes from God. Our faith is not, our faith is not the source of the power that performs miracles. And besides that, faith is not merely a superstitious belief that I can work my own miracles. Extreme charismatics routinely misconstrue what faith is all about. Faith is not belief in the magic of my own words. It's not a gullible trust that I can program my own mind as a tool to fulfill my wishes. Faith is simply trust in what the Lord says. That's all it is. So unless God himself has told you to command a mountain or move a mulberry tree, your belief that you can work a miracle isn't genuine faith at all. It's sheer superstition. And when Hebrews chapter, one, or chapter 11 verse 1 talks about assurance and conviction, it's not talking about the brash televangelist-style impulses that make all kinds of ridiculous claims about things that God never promised anyway. That's not faith. The faith spoken of here is an implicit faith. And by that I mean that faith is, or rather, it's not an implicit faith. By that I mean faith is never devoid of knowledge or understanding. Faith is not 
blind assent to, to something that you don't have any clue about. You know, the Roman Catholic Church actively encourages people to have that kind of sort of ignorant, what they call implicit faith, saying that you don't really need to understand or have any clue about what the church teaches. You may not even be aware that Jesus is God incarnate or that the Holy Spirit is a person. Even if you never gave a single thought to the question of why Christ died on the cross, if you trust the authority of the Pope and the infallibility of the church, that's faith enough, they say. Implicit faith in what the church teaches, whatever the church teaches, even though you haven't got a clue what it is. That's not faith at all. That's ignorance. And in a similar vein, what this verse has in view is not a mere profession of faith. You might sign a doctrinal statement or give lip service to a church covenant, but if you don't have any real love for Christ or hatred for the things that dishonor him, if you lack any interest in or enthusiasm for the truth that you profess to believe in, your public statement of assent to some facts that are listed on a sheet of paper, that is not faith, and it doesn't really mean anything. It probably won't last either because God purposely drives away people whose faith is a sham. You see Christ actively doing that very thing in John chapter 6. And 1 John 2.19 says this about people who abandoned the faith. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. In other words, this is God's intention that apostates apostatize because their faith wasn't real to begin with. They are tares among the wheat. So who orchestrates the departure of these people? The implication is that even if they just get bored or angry or leave because they lose interest, God is actually the one who sovereignly ushers them out of the fellowship because he purges the church of people whose faith is merely nominal because they're like Judas among the twelve. They poison the fellowship. They undermine the faith of weak believers. So what is faith? Well, the faith spoken of here is the same faith mentioned at the end of chapter 10. You'd probably see this more clearly if the chapter division wasn't there. And it wasn't there in the original biblical manuscripts. They weren't, you know, divided into verses and chapters. That's to help us, and it is helpful. But sometimes it can be a hindrance. So look at the end of Hebrews 10, verse 35, and here's some context. This whole epistle is an extended plea to half-hearted and vacillating believers. These are people from a Jewish background. That's why it's called the Epistle to the Hebrews. Some of them were considering leaving Christianity in order to go back to the more comfortable and familiar religion that they grew up in because Judaism seemed to have a lot more advantages to them. It was more ornate. It was more ceremonial. And above all, it was more socially acceptable than Christianity. And the strain of persecution, and in many cases, the loss of family relationships were wearing down their faith and, and their stamina. And so this entire epistle is a plea to people who were wavering, telling them, go on to maturity in Christ, stay with Christ, pursue ultimate sanctification, glorification. The flow of the argument is actually interrupted several times by a series of increasingly severe warnings, the warning passages in Hebrews especially Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, these are some of the hardest, most severe passages in the, old, in the whole New Testament. And, and the final warning, the last warning passage, comes here in chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, and this is a very strong condemnation of lukewarm, half-hearted faith. It, it's an indictment of this sort of bare, meaningless verbal assent to the truth. In fact, you won't find a more sharp-pointed warning about the evils of apostasy anywhere in the New Testament. Listen to it. Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. He says, If we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then the the writer reminds his readers of their early days in the church, verse 32, the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, All of the hardships associated with taking up your cross and following Christ, these do, after all, bear some wonderful fruit. And furthermore, he tells them, you knew that you had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, here he puts together words from three Old Testament texts to form what he says in the next verse. He's quoting snippets from two different places in Isaiah and then putting them together with a verse from Habakkuk, verse 37. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And then the next verse continues quoting from that same place in Habakkuk. This is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And by the way, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. This is one of Paul's favorite Old Testament texts. And it is the verse that was instrumental in Martin Luther's conversion. And notice, it's a verse about faith. Hebrews 10, 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. So this is the context, and it's about faith. And specifically, it's about holding firmly to the confidence that goes hand-in-hand with true faith. And he goes from that directly into Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Because what he's saying is that faith is a supernatural reality. It's a gift of divine grace, and it carries a dose of certainty with it. And in fact, you can't have assurance of your salvation at all if you're uncertain about whether the facts of the gospel are true. Now, some people teach that full assurance of salvation is the essential defining feature of genuine faith. What they're saying is that you haven't truly believed until you have full assurance that you're saved. And that is not what this verse means. And I think there are some pretty grave dangers inherent in that idea of faith. I won't go into it, but just to remind you that there are those places in Scripture, like the man in Mark 9 who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith and doubt do at times coexist. But still, this text does mean that faith contains the seed of our confidence in Christ. You don't have faith at all without a conviction that the Word of God is true. And so our faith contains the seed of our confidence. Now, belief in the truth of Scripture is so basic that you you simply can't reject it and make a true, credible claim to be a believer at all. You have to believe the Bible is the Word of God or you're not truly a Christian, even though lots of people call themselves Christians who who aren't really sure the Bible is true. Again, the clear implication here is that we are are not believers if, if we don't believe the Word of God. That's what certainty is. That's where the root of our certainty lies. And God himself holds us responsible for believing what he has revealed. It is our bounden duty to receive the Word of God as fully reliable, objectively true, factually accurate, historically trustworthy, inerrant, unchanging, eternal, and divinely revealed truth. That's If you believe Scripture is any less than that, you you haven't really come to full faith yet. Scripture is the touchstone of all truth and the standard by which every other truth claim must be ultimately tested. You can work out the epistemological kinks any way you like, but if you want to call yourself a Christian, 
you must believe at least that much. And that means we all have a, a bedrock of absolute certainty. We should not be uh, shy about declaring that to the world. It's really as simple as that. Don't succumb to the argument that says we should never try to sound definite or dogmatic just because the unbelieving world rejects the possibility of settled truth and, and knowledge whether they, they just don't know that anything is certain. So we have to cater to that idea. We don't. We have the mind of Christ. Let me close with one more quotation from my pastor, John MacArthur. Here's what he says. And he's talking here about that text, 1 Corinthians 2.16, that says, we have the mind of Christ. He says, the argument seems to be that if we cannot know everything perfectly, we can't really know anything with any degree of certainty. He says that appeals to the, that's an appealing argument to the postmodern mind, but it is at odds with what Scripture teaches. We have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. He says, that's not to suggest, of course, that we have exhaustive knowledge. But we do have infallible knowledge of what Scripture reveals. As the Spirit of God teaches us through the Word of God, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. That's 1 Corinthians 2.12. And MacArthur goes on to say, The fact that our knowledge grows further and deeper, and we all therefore change our minds about some things as we gain more and more light, that doesn't mean that everything we know is uncertain or outdated, or in need of overhaul every few years. He says, the words of 1 John 2, 20 through 21 apply in their true sense to every believer. You have an anointing from the Holy One. You know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and you know that no lie is of the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we do know that no lie is of the truth. We know that you cannot deny yourself. Strengthen our faith. Help us to stand when we ought to stand. Help us to be certain and proclaim with certainty the truth of your word, your word to a world that doubts everything. May we be bastions of faith in a skeptical world so that everything we say and do and represent brings glory to Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.